It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being on staff here at Wellspring. So glad to be with you. Uh, good to sort of be in the scriptures and in worship with you. Now, if you've been with us a while, you know we've been in 1 Corinthians for a bit now since the beginning of this year with a few topical messages uh, in between. But we're sort of traveling through 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11 now. We've spent the last three chapters actually talking about eating and idolatry and all these questions coming out of Corinth. And now we're at chapter 11, and the topic is going to veer uh, kind of abruptly. Now, as I was leaning into this text this morning, I read a bunch of commentaries, and one of the theologians was talking with N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright, who's this pretty famous British Anglican theologian, said that this is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, probably, you know, within a handful, but maybe the most difficult text in the entire New Testament. And the truth is, right, there are passages in the New Testament that are harder to understand than others. Even Peter thought this. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter writes, There are some things in them, referring to Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, right? So if you're reading Paul and you're like, I don't get it, well, you're in good company. And chapter 11 is one of the trickier ones. So you might wonder, so why are we actually reading it then? Well, because we have this conviction that all of these scriptures are from God for us, that we might be transformed into Jesus's image. Now, have you ever gotten, well, have you ever gotten an email where you just got the response, but you didn't get like the long train of emails that led up to it? Uh, a while ago, someone asked me to read an email response they were sending to someone. They're just like, hey, can you read it over? Just give me a little feedback. I was like, sure, no problem. And I got their email, I read it, and I was like thoroughly confused. I was like, I have no idea what you are even talking about. Can you send me the correspondence, like five or six back, that shaped that conversation? And I read it, and then I was like, oh, now I get it. And the truth is, when we get to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul and the Corinthians have gone back and forth. They've talked about this. There is a lot more going on, and what we have is Paul's response. Now, you might wonder, okay, so how do we figure out what's going on behind? What, what led up to Paul's response? Well, we're going to lean into a lot of the context. So usually in the, scripture, or in the scriptures, I'll go sort of straight into the text if I can, maybe a little intro. This morning, I'm going to spend more time sort of building the cultural awareness because it's a little different. Now, as we start, I'd like to show you a picture Right, this is a, a picture of a woman in a veil. Now, I'd like you to just look at this picture. Right, what immediately comes to mind? Right, it's a, a woman. She's wearing white. She has a white veil over her face. So in our context, right, you immediately assume what? Right, wedding. She's getting married. Right? In our context, that is pretty much the only place that veils really come up, that like feels intuitive. But that wouldn't have been the same when we get to ancient Corinth. Bruce Winter, who's a theologian, writes, In the ancient world, it can be confidently concluded that the veiled head was the symbol of modesty and chastity. Right? In the ancient world, when a woman wore a veil, it communicated a number of things. One, 
that she is a respectable woman who has a family that cares, and that anyone who harasses her will face consequences. It actually became this sort of interesting social way of protecting women. It was also connected to status, right? Women who wore veils were actually from the higher social classes than unveiled women. For instance, female slaves and female prostitutes were actually not allowed to wear veils. They were not allowed to. So as we lean into 1 Corinthians 11, which is going to talk about veils, we also need to think about what does it mean to be beautiful or even sexually attractive? Because a lot of this is culturally determined. Do you know that in Victorian England, right, to have a tan was considered not a good thing, right? It signaled that you worked in the fields, that you were not of a high social class, right? These people, these days, right, people pay to get tanned, right? This Labor Day weekend, people are outside trying to get as much sun as they can because beauty and what is sexually attractive is culturally constructed. And in the first century, right, if you went into Corinth and you asked any guy on the street, he would have said that women's hair is the most attractive and sort of like alluring element about women. And so much so that men were sort of assumed to be powerless under the spell, right, of female hair. There were actually Roman laws protecting men from unveiled women. Because the Romans thought that men, if they just, if they saw a woman's hair would be like unable to control themselves, right? They actually had laws to protect men. And for us, I know that sounds like, are you serious? Yes, this is real. <laughs> so when we get to the church in Corinth, what we find is that men and women right, are leading the congregation in prayer and prophesying during the service. Now, there's no question in this text that it is both men and women that are praying and prophesying. Right? Paul does not tell the women in 1 Corinthians 11 to stop speaking or praying and prophesying. Instead, he says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman, it's the same word in Greek, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, we'll get into this in a minute. What's important to recognize here is the text is not telling women, Paul is not telling women to not pray or prophesy or speak. What he is asking them is sort of what he's talking about is their attire while they do these things. So, men, what should you wear? Women, what should you wear? You can both wear, use your gifts. Paul is talking about attire. Now, from Paul's writings, we know that Paul has all kinds of interactions with women in his ministry. But it's important just to say right now, we'll do uh, probably a deeper dive into women in ministry at Wellspring in a class form so we can really get into it. But for now, what I want to say is, I think sometimes when we think of prophecy, right, so we know they're praying and prophesying, we think, oh, they're telling the future, right? So women are standing on stage or whatever, and they're telling the future. But actually, prophetic in the Old and the New Testaments, the primary function of the prophet was to communicate God's word to the people, right? God assures Moses, I will raise up for my people a prophet like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him, right? It's from Deuteronomy. 
the Lord says to Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. Right? A lot of the reasons people think Jesus is a prophet is he communicates, teaches clearly about God and his kingdom. Now, why this? Why do I say this? Because I think here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, it's important to recognize that Paul recognizes these women as prophets who are teaching God's word to the body. Right? Paul doesn't have an issue with women using their gifts in this passage. What he does have to say is about how women and men dress their attire while they minister. I want to read uh, verses 4 through 6. Every man, and this man and husband are the same word in Greek, every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife, again, wife and woman are the same word in Greek, who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as her head were shaven. For if a wife or woman, again, same word, will not cover her head, then she should have her hair cut short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife or a woman to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. All right. Now, you might be thinking, what is going on here? Well, let's just be clear, right? The what of what Paul is saying is pretty clear, right? Men, they can pray and prophecy without their head covered, but women can't. While they pray and prophecy, Paul says, <clears throat> sorry, the smoke is bothering my... All right, that the women, right, when they pray or prophecy, they should wear a veil, which then begs the question of Why? <clears throat> what Paul is saying is pretty clear. The why is a little more complex. Now, there's two major theories about why Paul says this. Theory one. Theory one is Paul comes into town and he is so empowering of women, right? Like crazy, right? Paul says there is neither female nor male. There's neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ, which is unbelievably radical. There is no one in that time, in that area, that says anything remotely like that vision of equality in the kingdom that Paul articulates. And the women, right, theory one is, the women are just like, this is unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like this. We're all one in Christ. Let's throw off the veils, right? We're up here. Let's throw it off. This is exciting. And then some of the guys who are in the congregation especially maybe the husbands of the wives that are up there in this cultural milieu are like, I'm super uncomfortable now. My wife is standing on stage. Her hair is dangling out here for all these men to see. You know, what are they thinking of her? What is she communicating about herself? And then they write to Paul, Paul, dude, come on. You got to put a stop to this. I'm super uncomfortable with my wife without a veil on stage, right? Because only prostitutes really are the ones who walk around unveiled. That's theory one. A lot of people support it. I actually think I lean towards theory two. I've done a lot of reading on this. Theory two is something like this. So if you remember back into 1 Corinthians 5, there's this guy who's in the church, right? And he's having sex with his mother-in-law who's outside the church. And guess what? No one says anything about it. They're all like, eh, right? Chapter 6. All these guys are like, we're free to do whatever. It doesn't matter what we do with our bodies sexually, right? We're free to do whatever. So what do they start doing? They start just visiting prostitutes in Corinth. And guess what? No one really says anything about it. They are so focused on freedom. They're so focused on disconnecting their spiritual life from their bodies. It's not hard for me to imagine 
that the men are actually pressuring the women to take off their veils during the service, this house church time, even if the women are uncomfortable with it. Hey, you're free. Remember what, G- Remember what Paul said? We're all equal. Just take your veil off. And some of the women, even though they feel uncomfortable with it, because they know what that's going to communicate, maybe they give in. And you get into this situation where some of the women are uncomfortable praying and prophesying, right? Because some of the men now out, out on, in the congregation are now objectifying them, right? Because their hair is dangling down and these men are like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed by the sexuality on stage. And Paul steps in and he says, all right, women, you can wear your veils. You should wear your veils. And the women think, Thank you. I'm so glad, Paul, you stepped in because these guys were pressuring us into the situation we were uncomfortable with. Two theories. I lean towards the second. I think it might be a combination of the two. You might have this situation where the men are pressuring the women. The women are like, well, we are free. Maybe we should go with it. And now you have husbands upset. You have women that are on stage uncomfortable. And the whole thing is a mess. So Paul then says this, and this is verses uh, 7 through 10 are where a lot of the textual confusion comes in. If you thought it was confusing up to this point, get ready. Okay, this is what he writes. For a man not ought cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife, again, woman, same word, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, you get it? All right. I just want to start with where people really go wrong here. The first place people really go wrong is to assume that only men are made in the image of God. Right? And this has wreaked havoc in church history. But this flatly contradicts Genesis 1.27. Men and women, according to the scriptures, which Paul would have known, are both made in the image of God, right? Paul would never have written that because he knows men and women are both made in the image of God. But what does Paul mean here by woman is the glory of man? Like, what are we supposed to do with that? I actually think he's providing a theological reason for why the women should wear veils even though, while they're praying and prophesying, even though the men might be pressuring them not to. If you go back to Genesis 1, what do you see? Each stage of the creation account gets more glorious. I think what Paul is saying is actually reaches its peak in the creation of woman, who is the glory of man, or mankind, or humankind. Those are all the same word. Too often what we read, we read this and we think, oh, because woman is formed second, she is actually lesser. Right? My kids, like, if you have a cool opportunity for them, and they, they're like, and they run to it, they're like, me first, me first, me first, and we kind of have this theological position, right? That if you're first, you're better. But actually, I think Genesis agrees with a riddle or a rhyme we used to say when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you know, if I lost in a race, in order to taunt the winner, I would say, first is the worst, right? Second is the, the best, And actually, I think Scripture agrees with this, right? So if created after or earlier, if created earlier equals more important, 
then animals should be more important than people. Plants should be more important than animals. And creation, without form and void, should be the most important of all, right? Because that's how it all started. Also, when you go back into Genesis, what you see is second is almost always best. Abel, right? Cain, or Abel is better than or better than Cain. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over his brothers. Throughout Genesis, what you see is second is always best. Women coming second actually fits a narrative pattern that allows Paul to make a theological point. Woman is the glory of humanity or man. So what Paul is saying, I think, is, hey, guys, don't put her on stage to pray and prophesy so that you can objectify her. She deserves to be honored as the glorious creation that she is. Another way that this goes wrong textually is that we translate or we understand for, right? Woman was created for man, and then we sort of assume that that means woman was created to serve man. But really, there's a Greek, there's a translation or a preposition called dia, right? And it can be translated lots of ways. It can be translated for or because of. And I actually think because of makes way more sense of the Genesis account. It was not Eve who was lonely and unable to manage and needed help, right? It was Adam. Eve was created as his azer, right? His helper, right? The word azer doesn't refer to a lowly assistant, but a figure who comes to help and save someone who is in need, right? This is why God is described in the scriptures as a azer, as a helper, Women as descendants of Eve are placed by God in creation to help the struggling man in the same way that God helps humankind. Right? And this helps explain why so many women of the upper classes in Corinth and around the Mediterranean flock to Paul's teaching. You ever thought about that? If Paul was saying to all the women, yeah, you're just, you're just made here to serve all the men, why would all these upper-class women convert to Christianity, follow Paul, start lending their resources and their houses to support his ministry? It also makes sense if the men are asking uh, the women to pray in prophecy in a way that does not honor them and they feel uncomfortable. Right? Hey, don't wear your veils. Paul's like, hey guys, the women in your church deserve way more honor than you are giving them. God created them as your Azar, as your helper, as the one who was there to be with you in your time of need, and now you're treating her this way? And this is why then Paul affirms that women have, should have exousia or authority on her head. The word symbol actually isn't in the Greek text. Why? Well, Eve was the one who helped Adam, and because of this, she should have a sign of her authority on her head when she is prophesying and worshiping uh, in the gathered community. Right? She's not supposed to stand there with her hair exposed and men objectifying her in the pews. Right? When the Queen of England wears a crown, it is what? It's a sign of her authority. And the same assumption of, applies to Paul and these women prophets, right? The veil was a sign of her authority to proclaim a prophetic word 
to the congregation in a way that she was honored and respected being created in the image of God, being created, right, as the glory of humankind. Paul then writes in verse uh, 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so is now, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Right, so Paul's saying, you know, men and women, they might have different attire in the congregation. They might actually have different roles in creation, created at different times for different purposes. But they're not independent of one another. They need one another. Right, church in Corinth, you need one another. Don't use each other. Don't pressure each other. You're not independent of one another. Right, in the beginning, woman did come from man. Let's all agree with that. That's what Genesis says. But then in verse 12, he says this, but now men come from woman, right? Like if we did a poll, just a quick poll at Wellspring, whoever's listening, you know, raise your hand if you were not born of a woman. Every single person has now come from women. Now you may have noticed at the beginning of this message, I skipped uh, verse 3, and I started at verse 4, and I did this intentionally, because if you have your Bibles in front of you, if you go back to verse 3, uh, it really connects to verse 12. Paul writes this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man or human is Christ, same word, right? The head of every wife or woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the reason I save this for now is because it's integrally connected to verse 12. And a lot of how you understand verse 3 depends on your translation of kephali, which is head in Greek. It can be translated three different ways. One, cranium, right? My head hurts. It could be translated as authority over, as in like Miss Jones is head of the company, or three, as source of or origin of, right? The headwaters of the Nile flow from Lake Victoria, right? So it can go three different ways. Now, I want to take a second and sort of, this is going to feel like a digression and it's going to feel maybe a little uh, academic or textual or like a little deep and you might be like, where is Tony going? And the reason I want to get into this is I actually think it's verses like these in the New Testament that have led to, throughout history, all kinds of misogyny, where men have interpreted texts like this to think then that they are better than women and that they can then have authority over women in ways that do not honor God. And so I want to go here, I want to take a little bit of a digression, hang in there with me, because I think it's actually really important. All right. There's a few reasons I don't think head actually works as authority over. Right? Paul writes, the head of every man or human is Christ. But we all know that that's not true. Right? If you polled people on your block and said, hey, is Jesus your authority? Would they all say yes? I seriously doubt it. He's not their authority, certainly according to them. 
And why would Paul then said, say that the, the head, the authority of every man is Christ, but not the authority of every woman? And then Paul writes, right, the head of Christ is God. And there's a lot of disagreement here about whether the Father actually has authority over the Son or not. And also, when you go back into Paul's other writings, his other letters, and you look at this word kephali, he almost always uses it as source in these ways. Consider Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the kephali, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. So what do you see here, right? In Ephesians, what you see? Connection between head and the source of growth. What does the head do? The head is the one who grows up the body. It's the source, the origin of the growth. Now you go to Colossians 2, 2.19. And holding fast to the kephali, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Again, what is the connection? Kephali, or head, is connection now to growing and nourishing. It is the source of the growth. Gordon Fee writes, he's a New Testament theologian, has a great commentary in 1 Corinthians. When Paul speaks of Christ as head in relationship to the church, it is a metaphor not for lordship, but for the supporting life-giving role that in ancient Greek thought, the literal head was understood to have in relationship to the physical body, right? So just as the head is the source of the body's growth and transformation, so Jesus is the source or head of the growth in the church. One more example, and then we'll get back to verse 3. It's also worth mentioning that in 1 Corinthians, the only time that Paul really specifically talks about authority is in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul tells the Corinthian wives that just as their husbands have authority over their bodies, right? So this would have been the expected assumption of their culture. Men have authority over their wives, Paul says this, wives, you have authority over your husband's bodies. And the idea that a wife would have authority over her husband's body is just as radical as the fact that men and women are one or equal in Christ. This is unbelievable push towards equality and mutual submission. I think this fits with a reading of kephali and the way we understand head and authority when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, right? We get to 1 Corinthians 11, 3. The origin or source of every man or human, right, is Christ. Jesus created us all. That makes sense. Second, the origin or source of woman is man, right? Okay, that makes sense. Genesis 2, right? Woman comes out of man. Great. And again, we already talked about this. This does not mean he's better. We've already gone through that. It's just a description of how it happened. Three, the origin or source of Christ is God. Sure, Christos, Messiah, the Messiah comes from God. 
right? And then when you combine this with verse 12, that every man is born of woman, the source of every man is woman, it sort of all comes together, right? Paul is not telling the Corinthian men that they have authority over all the women. He is saying, hey guys, God is the source of us all. I saying, who are the source of humans, of women, and the church? Now, I realize there's a lot of different textual moves in this so far. But if I was to summarize just briefly, I'd say something like this. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, hey, men, women, continue to pray and prophesy. Use your gifts. That's awesome. I love it. Hey, ladies, wear your veils. Like, don't let the guys... Tell, pressure you to not do it. And if you're running with this, a freedom idea, that's awesome. But just, hey, wear your veils. I think this will help everyone. Right? When you cover your heads, it reminds everyone of the honor you deserve in an incredibly patriarchal culture. Right? Eve helped Adam, right, in her weakness and need. Male and female, they need each other. Let the veil remind us of the authority the women prophets have to exercise their prophetic gift along with these male prophets. Now, I realize there is a lot going on in this text, and I am very aware that I didn't cover everything. Hopefully, though, you can kind of make some sense of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 11. And what I do now is just sort of try and pivot to how this might actually relate to us, right? So we have this text, we have it, and we're like, Okay, let's just pretend that Tony's right, and this is how, what, what does this even mean for us today, right? 2,000 years later, reading Paul's response to a specific contextual situation in the first century in Corinth. Now, I think clearly it speaks to those of us, right, who are using our gifts, right, during the service, right, that we should wear a tire that is not distracting to people in the pews, right? I think that's a very intuitive, natural way to apply it, but that only applies to a few of us. So what about the rest of us? I mean, I can tell you personally that this text reminds me, and I think it should remind all of us, that we need to have humility before the Scriptures. My Peter says, sometimes Paul's hard to read. You know, N.T. Wright says, this is one of the hardest texts in the New Testament to really understand exactly what is going on. I can tell you, one of the things I have learned in my doctoral work and in my master's degree is that there are way more people out there that are way smarter than me and that are way more faithful who disagree on texts like this. And I guess I just wonder for you, as you come to the Scriptures, I don't know, I feel like there's two different ways that people go. One way is you go in and you think, I know my Bible, you know. I know it, I'm rocking it, I get it. And then you become kind of calcified. You become kind of unopened to learning new things that God might have to say to you. And I think texts like this remind us like, whoa, okay. Like no one has mastered the Bible. God continues to speak and reveal himself through it. Even when we've been studying these passages for our whole lives, God can speak to us in new ways. And I guess I ask you, do you have that kind of humility before the scriptures? knowing that you could be wrong. I remember another quote N.T. Wright said, he said, you know, this dude knows a ridiculous amount of the scriptures. He's studying it for his whole life. He says, you know, I'm pretty confident that 20% of what I know, like, is wrong. The problem is, right, 
I don't know what 20% it is. Right? Do we have that kind of humility when we are approaching the scriptures? I think the second thing I would say is I think there's another group of us that maybe approach the scriptures and we're just like, I give up. Like you read this passage and you're just like, I have no idea what to do here. And I guess I would just push into you to say, in the end, I actually don't think it's based on your intelligence or your ability, but it's on God's grace and desire to reveal himself to you in the text. Will you trust the process that if you come to the scriptures that God wants to speak to you, that God wants to reveal himself to you, that God can reveal like, what is going on here? You know, if I was going to sort of lean back to this idea of the scriptures, I would just say, like, one, like, are you regularly submitting yourself to the text? You know, in sort of layman speak, like, are you reading the Bible? One of the amazing things, even in passages like this, is that God has given this uh, to us to reveal himself to us, to reveal what his kingdom is like. Are you submitting yourself to those scriptures in order to be transformed into his image? Or is it just kind of collecting dust somewhere? Is Netflix just more engaging, right? Instagram, TikTok, whatever. You just sort of get swept up and it's like, oh yeah, the Bible. God gave us this incredible resource to learn about him and his kingdom. Are you in it? And I guess as you're in it, let's say you are reading it, are you open to being challenged? Are you open to your perspectives being changed? Right? When we go back to Corinth, that's one of the major issues. They think they get it. And as they think they get it, right, and they lose all this sense of humility, what happens? They go right off track. Are you open to having your views and perspectives challenged by the text? If you're confused by them, are you open to studying one of the crazy things we have access to right now is unbelievable amounts of commentaries, unbelievable libraries full of really wise and smart people reflecting on these texts. Are you willing to take the extra effort and be like, all right, God, I'm willing to learn when I don't understand. Like, are you willing to do that? I can say just, uh, <laughs> uh, Jill and I were talking before service and we were just talking about how Aaron, who's on our staff team, right, just loves researching. And I was thinking this morning, oh my gosh, I think it would bring Aaron joy if you guys just said, I have a real question about this text. Aaron, could you give me two or three resources that I could devour? And he'd be like, this is the best job in the world, you know. He gets to give you resources that you can learn. Like, I think literally he would love it. And if you email me that question, I'll just ask Aaron, just so you know. So feel free to email either of us. Uh, Aaron will probably do the work because he, he just loves this stuff. He eats it up. So if you have questions, you want to learn, you're confused because some parts of the scriptures are confusing. We want to help. We want to be sort of coaches and resource guides in this. And I guarantee you it would bring joy to Aaron's heart to be able to pass on what he has learned and resources. Now, the second thing I kind of want to lean into uh, is this question of, are we honoring one another? Now, specifically, I think especially as it comes to gender differences, right, are we honoring one another? Right, if the reconstruction is correct, that the men are pressuring the women, like, I don't know, men, are you honoring 
the women that God has placed in your life. Spouse, mother, friend, coworker, neighbor. Are you honoring these women with the honor that they deserve? Right? Paul says they're your glory. Are you honoring her as the Azar, as the one God brought to help? Are you honoring the women in your life in a way that would bring joy to the heart of God? Women, are you honoring the men in your life? In the same way that God hoped Eve would come and help Adam, like are you helping Are you helping the men in your life in the way that God would want you to, honoring them? Right, spouse, father, friend, coworker, neighbor. We live in a cultural moment when I think men and women like gather in little pods and probably this has always happened throughout history and they like gripe and gossip and like say negative things about the opposite sex. Like are we participating in that? Or are we, through the gospel, undermining that, saying, no, I want to honor the men and the women in my life with the dignity and honor they deserve. I think this especially hits the ground when it comes to power. Right? So in the first century, the men had all the power. Right? So with that power, if our, the reconstruction is right, like they're using that to pressure the women to take off their veils I think it asks us, like, how are we using the power that we have? It's my perspective that everyone has a sphere of influence, a sphere in which they have power. Maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your work, your friend group, whatever. I think I would ask you this morning, how are you using the power you have to honor and uplift those over which you have power? Are you using that power to sort of encourage the gifting of people that are around you in the church? Are you using the power, leaders, staff, elders, are we using our power to uplift people that they might flourishing in their gifts? Or are we creating situations in which we are undermining them? Wellspring, church, are you using the power you have to uplift that people might live into their gifting? Paul clearly empowered the women that were around him. Jesus clearly empowered the women that he ran into. Are we? If you remember 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is what Jesus is about. How are we using our power to honor people that they might flourish into who God made them to be? I want to invite the worship team up. I think one of the core things about this text is about how God has created us, who we are, right? God created us male and female, right? He created us to flourish in community with one another. And this song, at least one of the key verses of the song is how God created us, that we are who he says we are, right? We live in a world where there's all kinds of voices that are undermining us. And as we sing this song, let's return to God's vision of who we are. Right? He wants to create a church where power is not abused, where every person is honored, where every person is respected, because that's who God says that we are. We are made in His image, and we deserve that. 
as his image bearers and as his children. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as we enter into worship, we turn back to you in this text. And we, God, we ask that you would speak to us through it. God, we ask that you would reveal our own hearts to us. God, ways that we might be tempted to kind of use our own power and our own self-interest rather than serving others. Ways in which we might be tempted to dishonor people around us based on sex or gender or other differences. And God, we ask that you would shape our hearts that they would match your heart. You would shape our lives that they would proclaim your goodness and your gospel. God, I pray for a spirit of repentance among us. If there is any way in which we are taking the opposite sex for granted, spouses, coworkers, friends, neighbors, parents. God, you are good. Redeem us, save us, cleanse us, that we may be all you created us to be. In your name, Jesus.